you don't know this, ministry is hard. Ministry is difficult. Ministry can be downright brutal at times. And ministry might even be delightful if it weren't for people. I'm kidding, of course, because ministry is all about people, right? You're not doing ministry if people are not involved. You're, you're doing something else, but it's not ministry. And it's about people because it's about the people of God. It's about the church of the living God. But one thing you can be assured of at any point in ministry is that because you're dealing with people, uh, even those who have some uh, remote profession of faith or, or in the process of sanctification in life, you can be assured that you will be met with challenges. You'll be met with difficulties. And as we come to our text today, what we're going to find is Paul giving Timothy certain instructions. Now, Timothy, again, who's his apostolic delegate, uh, Timothy was left at the church at Ephesus in Paul's place and on Paul's behalf to instruct the church of Jesus Christ on how she should be conducting herself because she's the church of the living God. She's the family of believers. So he gives them these instructions on how to deal with a particular people problem that Timothy was encountering. He's also going to give them instructions here uh, pertaining to his charge in, uh, in regards to his official duties as a minister, and then he's going to challenge him in an area that he might be neglecting in ministry. And all of these exhortations, all of these instructions are going to flow out of what we covered last week, Paul writing there just prior to this passage, that Timothy is to rigorously pursue training in righteousness. He's to avoid the silly, irreverent myths uh, he's to avoid all of that false teaching, the different doctrine. He's not to get embroiled in that, wrapped up in that. He's not to depart from the faith following after that. He is to train for godliness. Because godliness holds the key for Timothy in surmounting the people problems that he's facing in ministry. And godliness is the key for all of us in anything we're encountering in life as well as ministry. Now, we're going to look at three areas that Timothy is encouraged to be an example, uh, and we're going to look at these because they're relevant for us as well, whether you're in ministry or not in ministry. It's in the area of godliness, in the area of his devotion to God's word, and in the area of his giftedness. And we're going to close then with a warning uh, that Paul gives to Timothy. Here are the words of the Lord, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 11 through 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers in example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. Look how he starts there with this command. In fact, it's a command for Timothy to command the people of God. Verse 11, command and teach these 
things. What things? Well, as we've been talking about, anytime Paul uses these things, it's kind of a shorthand that he's using. He, he uses that phrase eight times in this letter. These things. Last week it was set these things before the believer. Now it's command and teach these things. These things are the sum and total of all apostolic teaching. For sure, everything in this letter. But it also extends to all of Scripture. The Old Testament. The Gospels. These things were to be set before the believers. That was Timothy's job to preach the gospel, to preach apostolic teaching, to preach and teach the scripture. And he's to command the church of Jesus Christ in regards to these things. All right. Earlier, we we saw there that he was to set them here, but now he's going to do something different. It's not just a casual talk he's giving to the people and teaching them these things. When he says to command, that's military language. He is under orders. He's under apostolic orders. And he's to exercise that authority that has been delegated to him as an apostolic delegate, commissioned by Paul, ultimately commissioned by Jesus Christ to command and teach these things to the believers. Just as if Paul were standing there before the church and saying these very same things himself. Now, here's the challenge Timothy was facing. There's a reason Paul is writing this to Timothy. He's got a unique people problem in the church. And that is that he was being undermined in his leadership by some who considered him to be too young to be in the position that he was occupying. Too young for them to sit there and receive any commendation of truth from Timothy. They considered him a young man. Now we're like, okay, how young was this guy? Because when we think of young, we're thinking of a teenager or maybe someone in their early 20s. But as we shared in the beginning of this series, Timothy was a man in his probably mid to late 30s. And you're like, wait a minute, how is that young? Well, it gives me hope because I'm in that age range. I'm a young man also. <laughs> don't you believe that? All right, you don't. All right. But he was in his mid-30s. How can he be a young man? Well, in that culture, not just the Jewish culture, but the Greek culture, Roman culture of that time, uh, someone in their mid-30s would still be considered young. Why? Because they valued the wisdom of the elders. Now, that's quite a contrast to our culture and our world today where youth is extolled, right? The, the, the virtue of youth is what everybody looks to. That, like they're the, the innovators. They're, they're, they're the ones who have uh, the collective wisdom now that they can run with. And elders are just kind of put away, right? Let's kind of tuck them away somewhere where they're not seen or heard. Very different from what we see in Scripture. Now, uh, this is something that's, that's super important. You know, because when you think about why would this be a problem for Timothy? He's, yeah, he's maybe not considered an elder, but think about those who were older in the congregation sitting there listening to a young man where youth was considered to be, have, be someone who was inexperienced. Only older people had the experience of life. Now, today we get knowledge by Googling, but Googling does not equate to experience and wisdom, right? You do know that. So they valued in this culture the wisdom of those who had experienced life, walked a considerable measure of life, and now someone could actually receive counsel from that person. So it would be hard for older people to sit there and listen to that. All right, Uh, Paul had 
given Timothy a task, a task Timothy had to undertake that was really beyond his years. But nevertheless, there he is. He's been sent, he's been commissioned, he's been ordained, and he's been set in office as an apostolic delegate to lead this church under Paul's instructions. And I can only imagine how difficult the task was for Timothy. I know how it was difficult it was for me when I was set in kind of my first official vocational ministry position. Um, uh, I, I came there, I was an outsider, and immediately I could feel there were people not happy that I was there. And they made that known. <laughs> they made me feel super uncomfortable. Uh, they challenged my leadership. They challenged my, my authority at every turn. And I could think here, uh, Timothy imagining what some of these people were thinking about him. Who is this pipsqueak? This youngster, like, he's inadequate to the task. What can he possibly teach us? What could we possibly learn from that young buck? Then there were those who were probably openly challenging Timothy. That would have been some of the false teachers, may have been even some of the elders of the church, because some of those false teachers, many scholars believe, were probably elders at one time there at the church at Ephesus, knowing that there would be some who were jealous of his position. Maybe they were there for some time and they thought, well, it's our turn. Shouldn't I be the one? I've been here for 10 years. He's just coming in from the outside, right? So all of these things are happening, all these things. Timothy is feeling these things. He's experiencing these things in ministry. He is being challenged because of his youthfulness. But we also know something else from the pastorals here. There was, there was another aspect to Timothy's character that would present a challenge for him in ministry. And we talked about it uh, in our first uh, message of this series. In chapter 1, we know that Paul was not just young, consideration of this culture, but Timothy was also timid. There was an aspect of Timothy's personality and character that made him kind of reserved, maybe kind of fearful. So imagining being dealt with these kind of confrontations and leadership, challenges to his leadership, people jealous of his leadership, talking about him behind his back and probably to his face. So he needed encouragement in this area, and Paul gives him that uh, in his second letter to Timothy. He reminds Timothy to get busy operating in his gifts because God has not given him a spirit of timidity. He's not giving him a spirit to fear but one of power, love, and self-control, right? So Timothy had this target on his back because of his youthfulness, probably because of his character and personality in terms of not confronting some of these people that made him an easy target. And this was undermining his leadership in the church. So Paul is giving him this to bolster his encouragement, for him to step into the authority that he does have. Now I would imagine in the flesh, Timothy would have loved to put these people in their place. You ever dealt with someone, you know, that was really challenging? You might find this in the workplace. Some of you may have occupied supervisory or leadership positions or managerial positions, and there's nothing like having someone that's in your team challenge you constantly. You ever experienced that? Maybe behind the scenes undermining you, talking about you to others, questioning every one of your decisions, right? And, and you just feel like, I just want to put the smack down on that individual or fire them, you know, get rid of them, demote them, do something to them. 
But I think Timothy's timidity would have made it difficult for him to confront these people. Now, that, there's a few people out there who love confrontation, but I've met very few people who say, I love confrontation. Anyone here who loves confrontation? No, we don't like confrontation. Uh, we, we don't like getting in someone's face and, and, and dealing sometimes with these very difficult challenges that, uh, of either leadership being undermined or being talked about or betrayal or any of these things. Um, you know, I, I, I know I've experienced that in ministry. I've walked through that. Uh, that journey, unfortunately, you go to sleep with a pit in your stomach. You don't sleep. You toss and turn. People are talking about you or challenging your leadership or being just overall jerks. You know, unfortunately, that happens in the church. Nobody here, of course. It's not a, it's not a pleasant feeling, right? It's one of the greatest trials that a, a pastor can face. It's one of the greatest trials of ministry. The reality is how one handles those things can either derail a church or it could set a church forward in the in path of, of growth and godliness. You know, uh, but it's a difficult thing in ministry. We face it in our daily life, but it's another thing to face it in the church of Jesus Christ. We have different expectations, right, in the church that people are actually going to act a little holier, right, actually live in their sanctification, but it, that's not always the case. And it's not just about the church. Because even apart from leadership, I know some of you here have experienced that where people have looked down at you for a number of reasons. Not just because maybe you were young, but maybe because you were experienced. Maybe it was because of your ethnicity. Maybe it's just because they overall didn't like you. I know all of us might have stories when it comes to that. But now Paul's going to tell him how to surmount this people problem. And his instruction to Timothy here is really classic instruction uh, for leadership, but it's also for each and every one of us. In fact, it's a passage that if you've been in youth ministry, you've either preached it or you heard it, right? Because it's, sometimes we, we think about this, this only applies to the young. This is instruction for teenagers. This is instruction for the youth group. No, this is instruction for pastors and ministers. This is instruction for every single Christian. Notice, he doesn't instruct Timothy to assert his authority. He doesn't instruct Timothy to pull rank. Hey, I'm the pastor. I'm the elder. I'm Paul's delegate. He he doesn't instruct him to act aggressively towards his detractors. He doesn't say, Timothy, get defensive, man. Go on the defensive. Nail them. Like, just hit back as hard as you can. That's what we want to do. But that's not what... He's instructed to do in this passage here. He exhorts him rather to be an example in godly character. Be an example. Set an example for the believers. And what in godly characters? Look, let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Timothy, here's how You can get those that are looking down at you now to begin to look up at you. To begin to look up to you. That's a tall order. That would have been extremely difficult in that culture. It's extremely difficult in a lot of areas in life. But he's to do that by being an example of godliness. And the point is, they won't despise Timothy because of his youth if they find his godly character something worth admiring. 
If his godly character is admirable, then this is something that can be overlooked. His youthfulness because, wow, look at his life. That is the example to follow. And isn't that what pastor and elders are supposed to be? Examples. Examples to the flock. I know there's a lot of pastors whose ministry MO is do what I say, not what I do. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. Do what I do is what it's supposed to be, right? Uh, And so Paul ticks off a few things that he's supposed to be an example in. Speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. That's not an exhaustive list. There's a whole lot of other things he could have listed here as godly traits, godly characteristics, but they represent a lot of things there. And it's the same exhortation here to be an example that Peter gives to the elders in his own letter to the church. Look at First, uh, uh, first Peter chapter 5, verse 3. You don't have to turn there, but he tells the elders there, be an example to the flock. An example is a pattern, isn't it? It's a pattern that is set before others that they are to look at and go, okay, that's what I need to follow. Those of you who are uh, seamstresses, I don't really know anything much about this, right? But if you're making a dress or making some outfit, right, you have a pattern that you cut the fabric out in, right? That is the template that you use, right, to set out and follow to construct what you are fabricating or what you're making. In this case, it's someone's godly character that is set as the pattern that everyone needs to look at and go, okay, that is the pattern to follow. That's what the elders are supposed to be. That's what the pastor of a church is supposed to be. But sadly, that's not the case all the time. It's not an example you might want to follow, but it's supposed to be, right? Titus chapter 2, Paul writes there instructing uh, another young man, Titus 2, 7 and 8, show yourself in all aspects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. He's saying the same thing to Titus there. Same thing Peter is telling to the elders. Be an example. Be a model for others to follow. And then, here are some godly traits in which you ought to be an example in. Now, how can Paul command this? That's a tall order. That's a big, big deal. Well, Paul could command this because that's the exact same thing that others could see in him. Paul wasn't instructing Timothy to do something that he had not done himself. He's not telling Titus to do something he hadn't done himself. Peter is not telling the elders to do something he has, was not doing himself. How many times do we fall, find Paul writing in his other letters, imitate me because I'm also imitating Christ. Follow me because I'm following Christ. Look at my life and I will point you to Christ. That is the job of an elder. This is what Paul is instructing Timothy. How many of us can say that? For sure, it's for a pastor, an elder of a church, but isn't this for every believer? Shouldn't every follower of Jesus Christ be able to tell someone else, you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus? Watch me. Watch me. I'm not going to throw shade here, though I could, right? But our current president is famous for saying the line many times when people challenge him, just watch me. Watch what I do. What is he saying? Well, by looking at me, 
you'll know. I can say something, but really my actions are going to be the things that tell you what I really believe and what I really practice. How much more should every believer hear, right? He ain't following through on that, but that's another sermon. But for every believer, every follower of Jesus Christ, can we not say to others, you want to know what it looks like to be in the faith, to know the truth, to to, to see it inform your day-to-day life, what it looks like to follow Jesus? Look at me. Watch me. Isn't how the disciples learned from Jesus? What did he tell them to do? Follow me. Follow me. Watch me. Observe me. That is the crux of discipleship. The entering into the school of discipleship with Jesus is to follow Jesus, to learn from Jesus. And each of one of us is called to make disciples. And how do we do that? It's not just by having a class. It's by telling someone, follow me, watch my life, because I'm following Jesus Christ. And as I do that, you're going to learn what Jesus looks like. You're going to learn what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ. How many of us, you know, have had, you know, bosses that commanded compliance, that ruled through fear and intimidation, right? Do this or else. They don't inspire followership. No, the greatest leaders inspire because there's something about their life, there's something about the way they lead that inspires you to follow. And the Christian's life should inspire other people to follow Jesus. They see it working in our life. They see how we go through adversity and trials in life. They see the peace of God in our life. They watch us as we're suffering. They watch us, watch us as we experience loss. They watch us how we deal with difficult circumstances. They watch us in our interpersonal relationships with others. And they go, wow, that is something otherworldly there. How do I get that? How do I find that in my life? I know there's a lot of testimonies here from, from some of you that have experienced that in your workplace and, or with family members and others, friends that they've seen your life over a period of time. And they go, you've got something I want. And so for a minister like Timothy who is experiencing people problems in the church, those who are maybe looking down at him for really no good reasons cultural reasons or other things, Paul is saying, it's your example, Timothy. You've got to lead by example, not by lording over them, not by exercising just your authority over them, not just by saying, do it because I say so, and pulling rank, but by his godly character. And notice this list he gives them here. Speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. These are comprehensive godly characteristics, even though he just names a few. Speech and conduct, wasn't that the whole of life? It's word and deed, right? It's it's your lips, what comes out of your lips, and it is the fruit of your life. It's what you say, and it's how you behave. All of that is in view here when he tells them to set an example. He's not just saying, hey, Timothy, set an example when you're just standing behind the pulpit and teaching God's word. Nope, in your speech. Well, he starts there with speech. Is there anything that gets you more in trouble than your mouth? <laughs> I know that's the one thing that has gotten to me into great trouble at different times in life and many trials of my own making because of my big mouth. 
We've all experienced that. We get in trouble because of our mouth. We, have, we went through a whole series in Proverbs on that, and we talked about the speech, how many Proverbs warn us about this thing, man, this little piece of flesh, right, that James said is, on, is set on fire by the very flames of hell. <laughs> that little piece that, that's like a rudder of a ship and steers your life, and oftentimes it's not steering you in the right direction. How our speech needs to be sanctified, Right? But it can get us into trouble. I mean, James exhorts us here to be quick to listen and slow to speak. He's saying, Timothy, be an example to the people of what it looks like to have a self-controlled tongue. That your speech is seasoned with grace. That your speech is seasoned with gentleness and kindness. You're going to be challenged. People aren't going to like you. People are going to question your leadership. And you're going to want to lash out. You're going to want to use your tongue to cut them down to size. You're going to use your tongue maybe to even curse them. Don't do that. You've got to be an example of godliness in how you use your tongue, how you speak to others. It's a lesson for us. Your tongue gets you in trouble at work. Your tongue can get you in trouble at school. Your tongue will get you in trouble in relationships. Your tongue will get you in trouble in marriage. A lot. Right? We have to live self-controlled lives, and that extends to our speech. Our speech needs to be seasoned, right, with, with, with godliness. First and foremost, with the Word of God, how much should a minister's words have the Word of God prevalent? But also in dealing with difficult people. Our words reflect, you know, that the Spirit of God is at work in our life. Notice these are the observable qualities, you know, that, uh, that, that others can, can experience. They're hearing these things, you know, from the mouth of the elder. Others are observing us. How we talk is going to say a lot about our faith, isn't it? Like, you can talk about Jesus and tell people to follow Jesus, but if you are just mean and spiteful and you're gossiping about people and you're slandering others... Well, you've got to, there's, there's an incongruity there, isn't there? Something's misfiring, okay? So we need to be self-controlled in our speech. We need to set an example in our speech. Now he moves to the other part, conduct. Now word conduct means manner of life. In fact, some translations spell it out that way. So be an example, set an example in speech, but also in your way of living, your manner of life, your conduct. Every facet of Timothy's day-to-day life, he is to set a godly example. This is not just ministry, is it? Now, Timothy, I don't think, was married. That's not mentioned, right? But he would have had to have set an example in his marriage if he were. It would extend to his relationships and how he dealt with people outside of the church, in the community, in Ephesus there, the, where, which, which was his home. For us, think about it, it's our jobs. Some of you might be involved in sports and hobbies and, and leagues or other things. Certainly to family members who don't know Jesus and who watch your life and you deal with and you interact with. Classmates at school. Our day-to-day life, we need to be setting a godly example. So people see, look, our faith informs everything we do. It's not just going to church on Sunday. 
It's not just the two hours a week I spend with the gathering of believers and I can come in there and put on a happy face and act like I'm super spiritual. Now, this thing plays itself out everywhere else in life, doesn't it? When I go home, how I treat my kids, how I treat my spouse. I can say all sorts of pleasantries here, but if I go home and rip my wife apart with my tongue or I'm mean, right? That's not godliness. I'm not setting an example. We have to set an example there. So these are the observable things. Timothy, they can see your, they can see your life. They hear what you say. And you need to set an example in those two areas of godliness. But then it extends to these inner qualities that he mentions here. Love, faith, and purity. These are the, the, the things that have been, are working out in Timothy's heart. Of course, it spills out to his life, to his speech and his conduct. It begins there. Right? But here he, he mentions these inner qualities that, that Timothy's to exemplify love. That word love there is agape, right? We understand that as this unconditional love, a love that is not determined by circumstances or feelings. This isn't Timothy, you get to fall in and out of love. If they treat you bad, you don't have to love them anymore. If they undermine your leadership, you don't have to talk about them any, uh, love them anymore, right? If they talk about you behind your back, you don't have to love them. Nope. He says you got to set an example in love. In every circumstance and with every person you interact with. Love has to dominate. Isn't love the prevailing virtue that Jesus mentions that people will look at and see and know that we're his disciples? Because that love is manifested in every action. If you don't love people, you have no place in ministry. Like, No business in ministry. A pastor who runs to the green room because he doesn't love the people and doesn't want to talk to them and minister to them has no business in ministry. How else will people know if you love them if you can't spend time with them? You don't pray for them. You're not there for them. You're not encouraging them with the word of God. You don't have an uplifting word for them. And Paul says, Timothy, you've got to set an example in love. These people who are, who are looking down at you for your youth and despising your youth, they better see love in action in your life. They, they better see it played out. They need to know you love them even though they may disagree with you. He's to exemplify faith. Now that could be faithfulness. They need to see his faithfulness or it could be his, his, his standing and, and, and his holding fast to the faith, the words of faith, the apostolic teaching. Both are relevant. Both apply there. He's to hold fast to the truth and he needs to be a model of faithfulness to the people of God. Again, these are the same qualities every believer needs to have present, but how much more for those who would presume to lead the people of God. And then he's to exemplify purity. That word purity there is about uh, moral uprightness. We might talk about it as integrity of, of character, right? All of these things, right? Obedience, uh, repentance, an example of a self-controlled life. Timothy's got to be an example of godly character. Every pastor and elder needs to be an example of godly character in these ways. And every believer needs to be striving to be a godly example in their character, in their conduct, in their speech, in their love, in their faith, and in purity. These are all reflective of the qualifications that we spoke about, uh, the qualifications of an elder in chapter 3. 
When you look at these things and you look at that list, you're like, okay, this is all what it's about. Living above reproach and all of these things. Holding fast to the faith. Certainly they've got to love the sheep. They've got to love the flock of God. Or else how can they lead the people of God? So the first thing he's telling Timothy here um, is that they can look at him and see a life that's worthy of emulating. And that will shut the mouth of his detractors. That'll change the opinion, right, that some of these people had about his youthfulness. He can lead then with moral authority. Right? Here, here's the deal. Minister is a character profession. It's not a set of tasks. That's a big problem in the church today. Well, we have a need. Let's just throw somebody in there so they can fulfill the task. It's not primarily about the task. It's primarily about the character and the heart of that person. Because why? You're dealing with people. Why? Because you're dealing with the people of God. Why? Because it's the family of God. It's not your thing. It's not your people. You're not my people. Ministry is a character profession. And we have to lead as as ministers, as elders, uh, out of moral authority that flows from godly character. And that godly character then invites others to follow our lead. That's what Paul's telling Timothy here. Here's how you're going to win them over. You're going to turn them from those looking down at you to those looking up at you. You'll win them through godly character. This is how we're going to win people over in our life too. Through our life. Yes, we talk a lot about you know, we, we, we proclaim the gospel with words, right? That's important. People aren't, don't just look at our life and automatically understand the gospel and get saved, okay? You understand that. We, we talk about that frequently here. But what a testimony a godly character has. The power of godliness in the life of a believer that others see something about you that they'll ask you. As First Peter says, they'll ask you for the reason of the hope that you have. Then you can just open your mouth and proclaim the gospel. And that gospel message is reinforced with godliness. It's reinforced by a character that lines up with the profession of someone's mouth. How powerful that is. Absolutely powerful. So we need to be examples of godly characters, examples in godly character in our life. Notice what we said last week about godliness. When Paul instructs Timothy to train for godliness, this is what you need to do as a man of God. He says bodily training has some value. Has some value here on this life on earth. But what he says about godliness? That godliness has value in this present life and the one to come. There's value to godliness in this present life. And for Timothy, here's an example of it, Timothy. This challenge you're having with people in the church, here's how you're going to resolve it. Godliness. They're going to look at you. They're going to see you. They're going to watch your life, the example you're setting uh, before them, and they're not going to have anything evil to say about you. Those of you who have problems in the workplace, you've got coworkers who don't like you, you your manager you know, rubs you the wrong way or you rub them the wrong way, all these things happen uh, in the workplace. This is how you win people over. Don't give them a reason, a valid reason, to hate you, to despise you. Now, they may because they know you're a Christian, right? That's going to be found offensive to some, and that's okay. That's cool. There's nothing you need to change there. 
But if you're a jerk, you're a gossip, you're always late, you don't do your job, you're a slacker, other people always got to cover for you, you've given them a reason, a valid reason. You're not just playing godly character there. Right? So our inner life and our outer life should be worthy of imitation. That goes for ministers, that goes for all followers of Jesus Christ. The second area he needs to be an example is in his devotion to God's word. Verse 13, until I come. All right. Paul had the expectation that he was going to return. Timothy was kind of a placeholder, but with real authority. And he was to set things in order and instruct and teach the church everything Paul wanted the church to know. But here he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Paul is charging Timothy here with, which, with, with what is to be the primary and central aspect of the worship of the church. The centrality of the word of God. Not secondary. Not something we do on the side. Not something that we take a few minutes to do. Here is your primary task, Timothy. Devote yourself to the public. That's the key, isn't it? He's not saying go ahead and study in private, though that needs to take place. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. First of all, he says here, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture. Now, this was already a part of early Christian worship because it's just following the pattern of the Jewish synagogue. Uh, The men would stand. They would read the Word of God. They would read the Scripture, the prophets, the writings, uh, the wisdom literature, right? And this continued on over into the church. So they had the scripture that was read publicly. But there was something else that was also read in the church, like this letter. This was apostolic teaching. The instructions for the letters were that it wasn't just to the recipient. Uh, this letter is for Timothy, but the expectation was that it was going to be read in the church. He was going to stand up and say, here's what Paul's writing to us. And he would command and teach those things. He would declare them uh, with authority because why? It would already be received as Scripture. Okay, so Scripture, Old Testament, the apostolic teaching, the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or at least those who were written at at the time that they were written were also read in the churches. So all these things would be read publicly in the church. And this is absolutely essential to the worship of the church. Why do we incorporate Scripture in all that we do here? Because it's the central and primary task of what we do as the church. It's the Word of God. It is how God speaks to us. So we can all sing the songs that we do, but they also need to be laced with Scripture. They They all need to be reflective of what God's Word teaches. They ought to be summations of the teaching of Scripture. We will read Scripture publicly. We'll read Scripture in the passage that we're talking about because it's central to what we do in worship in the church of Jesus Christ. The Word of God is central. Why is there a pulpit here and not a little coffee stand in a stool? Because the word of God is central. You know, the pulpit's not just a, na- a little convention of the church. This has its grounding in the Old Testament. And you read in Nehemiah chapter 8, when the people of God gathered and Ezra stood up to read from the book of the law. What did they do? They built him a platform. They built him a stand, a pulpit, where the book of the law was read from and people could look up and see and hear the word of God being proclaimed. 
Why? Because the word of God is central. We need to get that into our hearts and in our heads. It is the central thing that we do in our gathering. It's astounding that the word of God has such a little role in most churches. A lot of attention given to the music production. A lot of attention given to the coffee area where there's lattes and specialty drinks and all those things. Those things are nice. A lot of attention given to the video announcements that are made. A lot of attention given to the TED Talk given by some professional communicator. But very little attention given to the Word of God. How can that be any good for a church? How can that grow a church spiritually the way it needs to grow in godliness? The Word cannot take a back seat to anything else that we do. Okay? What a contrast. What a contrast. Again, what we see, how God's Word convicted the people in the Old Testament. There in Nehemiah chapter 8. I encourage you, go home and read that today. I taught about it in our series at the beginning of the year. But Ezra, there he stands. He reads for six hours. And people are standing at attention, receiving the word of God, hearing the word of God. Ezra and the other scribes that were trained began to expound on the scripture and give the the sense and the meaning and give them understanding. And the people of God, you know what they did? They scrolled through Facebook. They were on Twitter. They were texting each other. Read what it says in Nehemiah chapter 8. It says that they wept. They wept under the conviction of the Scripture. Do you weep under conviction of Scripture? Does God's Word move you that way? To a deeper devotion to Him, to deeper worship of God? It must. It must. What was taking place there? The Word of God was being made central. And there he moves to here, Timothy must devote himself also to exhortation and teaching. Now, exhortation is preaching. In fact, uh, I think the NIV translates it preaching or the CSV. One of the translations translates it also as preaching. What is preaching? Preaching is exhorting from the Word of God. It's encouraging from the Word of God. It's commanding people to obedience uh, from the Word of God. It's proclaiming truth from the Word of God. That differs from teaching because teaching is more about instruction. It's more about training, right? It involves explanation and it involves application of Scripture. And Timothy's to devote himself to these two things. What he's calling him to is what we call biblical exposition. He is to preach and teach in an expository manner. He is to explain the Scriptures. He's to expound the Scriptures. He's to exhort from the Scriptures. Preaching and teaching, that is the ministry of the Word of God by the minister of God in the church of Jesus Christ. That was the norm in the church. Not therapeutic messages, not story hour from the pastor, not a comedy sketch. Exposition of the Word of God. Why? Because the Word of God is the only thing that can transform the people of God. It's the only thing that can grow the people of God. Ministers are called to be radically biblical in their preaching. And I believe that must be expository for it to grow the church of Jesus Christ the way they need to. Now, the false teachers, they taught irreverent, silly myths. They tried to razzle-dazzle people with their knowledge of endless genealogies and 
revelations and ministries, but that was not supposed to be Timothy. He was to devote himself to the Scripture. Public reading, exhortation, and preaching. And exhortation and preaching means that he needs to devote himself, not just public reading, but private reading. Lots of it. Lots of study. A lot of time goes into what we do here week in and week out. I'm not downloading messages from sermons.com. Or get your Sunday message. I don't know if that's... I should get that URL. Start a new website. It takes study. It takes prayer. It takes laboring over the scripture. I need to understand it for myself. I can't teach what I don't understand. I need to allow that word to massage itself in my own heart and work in my own heart and work in my own life. Right? In order to stand up here and now exposit from the word of God. Not my thoughts. Not my opinions. Not my hot take on it, but from what God's word um, declares to us. So he needs to devote himself to that. God's word is not central. There can't be proper worship in the church. And if God's word is not central, we cannot grow in godliness as the people of God in the church of Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he writes this to Timothy 14 through 17. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That goes hand in hand what he's telling him here to devote himself to the word of God the way he's telling him to. Because only God's word can make one wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Only God's word is profitable, beneficial, useful, right? For reproof, correction, training in righteousness to build up the church of Jesus Christ. And only God's word can equip the man of God for every good work. And only the word of God can help you grow in godliness. And only a devotion to the word of God can move you in that direction, brothers and sisters. It's our continual plea, our continual exhortation here is be in God's word. You cannot do this life apart from the word of God. You can't grow in godliness without it. He's also to be an example here in using... His God-given gifts. And you to be an example in using your God-given gifts. Now this is fascinating here. To further encourage Timothy in the trials of ministry and his people problems that he's facing, the opposition, right? Paul calls him to remind the circumstances surrounding his commissioning for ministry. Now, what Paul writes here, many believe, was probably pointing Timothy back to his ordination. Right, when he was set into office or sent out for ministry. We don't have a lot of details on this. We really don't have any details other than what Paul writes here and in 2 Timothy regarding this thing. But there are three things, three specific things that happened in, in this significant event that Timothy is to call back to his remembrance here um, that are important. So he writes in verse 14, Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy 
when the council of elders laid their hands on you. But Paul writes here, first of all, that, that there is a certain gift that was bestowed to Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he calls that gift the gift of God, right? So he's, he's, he's telling them, hey, this gift is from God, right? This is not a natural skill, a talent, or ability that Timothy possessed, right? Like we all possess maybe some, certain talent or ability. No, this was a God-given gift, okay? A grace gift from God, and that was given to Timothy, he doesn't specify what that gift is. He doesn't say what that gift entailed and, or, or what exactly it was. But we can assume from everything he's written in this letter and in 2 Timothy that this gift had to do with, with his preaching and teaching ministry or, or his leadership uh, role in the church. Okay? It was a gift from God in this area given to Timothy for the benefit of the church, you know, uh, for, for the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. So it had to probably center around teaching uh, or leading the people of God in the church. Secondly, he says that this event was also accompanied with a prophetic message through which this gift was given uh, to Timothy. Now, Paul alludes to that uh, in the opening chapter uh, of First Timothy here where he references the prophecies that were previously made about Timothy. And he says... Remember those because by those you're going to be able to wage the good warfare. So keep those things in mind. Whatever those prophetic uh, utterances were, those prophetic messages, those words that were given to you, hold on to those because you're going to need them to wage the good warfare. You're going to need to remember them because you're going to have opposition in ministry. You're going to have times of difficulty in ministry. You're going to face opposition from, from those who are looking down at your youth and despising your youth and thinking that you are, are, are inadequate to the task. And I want you to remember those. Don't forget them. So there's this prophetic message. Uh, and And there's an event in Acts chapter 13 that might be kind of what maybe was taking place here. Again, we don't know what those prophetic words were, uh, but perhaps they were to single Timothy out for ministry, to single him out as being called by God and set apart for the ministry task. In Acts chapter 13, we see that there were prophets in the church at Antioch, and the Spirit speaks through them to set Paul and Barnabas apart for ministry. And they laid hands on them, and they sent them out to the work that God had called them to. Perhaps this was something like that, okay? Uh, but Timothy uh, is to remember this pivotal moment, because as these prophetic words uh, were spoken and this gift was given to him, says the council of elders then laid hands on him as a sign of commissioning, as a sign of blessing, as a sign of the impartation of these gifts, and then Timothy was commissioned to uh, this very work here. Why the flashback? Why, Timothy, remember that moment? Remember when that was given to you? Remember what happened? Remember as you knelt, possibly, and the elders laid their hands on your head and they spoke these prophetic words over you and you were set apart for ministry and called out. Why do you need to remember that? He says, do not neglect the gift you have. Not you might have. You have this gift. He has a gift. He has a gift and he shouldn't fear those who oppose him because he has this gift. Because he's been called. Because he's been commissioned and given this special endowment. So you're not to fear. They're going to question your leadership. They're going to question your teaching. But you have a gift. You have a gift. 
Only don't neglect it. Do not neglect this gift. He's got to take care not to neglect it. He's not to set that gift aside. Because if he does that, it's to the detriment of the church. It's to the detriment of his own ministry. And Paul reminds this uh, again in 2 Timothy chapter 1.6. He writes to Timothy again. For this reason I remind you. To what? Fan into flame the gift of God. Which is in you through the laying on of hands. That gift, that whole thing, it's the same thing he's talking about here. He's been given a gift from God and he's to exercise it. Because if he doesn't exercise it, that's neglect. If he doesn't exercise it, it's going to diminish or wither away. What does that tell us? That gift has to be nurtured. Timothy's got to employ that gift. He's got to exercise that gift. He's got to cultivate that gift. And the imagery he gives us here is fanning into flame. Right? Which we have to do sometimes. If you've got a fire burning and you don't attend to it, what happens? It starts to smolder. It starts to diminish. You might only be left with a few embers. Well, how do you, how do you get it back into a roaring fire? You've got to feed it what it needs. It needs oxygen. It needs fuel. Right? You've got to blow some air at it to get it into flame again. So it's something that Timothy has to attend to or it's just not automatic. Which gives us some instruction when it comes to gifts. Timothy's been given a gift from God here. And he's got to develop it. Because it's not a once and for all time gift. At least it doesn't appear that way from the language Paul is using here. It's got to be used, it's got to be cultivated or it diminishes or, or it withers away. I think the warning here is, Timothy, use it or lose it. Use it or lose it. But brothers and sisters, you've been given a spiritual gift. We all, in Christ Jesus, have been given a spiritual gift. Now, yours may not have come by prophetic message. No prophet stood up and gave you a word from the Lord to say, this is your gift. Maybe hands were not laid upon you. But you still have been given a gift by the Lord. Let's quickly look at this. this. We don't have time to teach on spiritual gifts here, but let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. A few portions from this passage of Paul's writing to the church at Corinth to give them instruction concerning spiritual gifts. He writes, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. I want you to know about these things. You've got questions. I want you to know about them. Because you have gifts You need to be instructed in gifts. Because you have gifts, I don't want you to be uninformed. Verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in... Some people? Everyone. Every believer in the church. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one, to each one, individually as he wills. Isn't that awesome? You might think, I don't really have anything special. No, you have a gift. I don't know what I bring to the table. I don't know what I have to offer the church. It says here, you have a gift. You've been given a gift. 
been apportioned to you by the Spirit as He wills. Now, I know some of us want other gifts that we don't have. I would like the gift of dunking a basketball. There's a lot of gifts I would like. There's a lot of things I would like to do, but that's not the gifts I've been given. Hence the short stature. But I have been given a gift. So I have a responsibility to cultivate that gift and exercise that gift. Look, for the common good. For the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what that gift's been given for. It's not for me to have a gift and now stuff it in a drawer. Put it on a shelf and just ignore it. Or or let fear or other things cause me not to exercise that gift or what other people say to me. No, it's to be exercised for the building up and edification of the church. Romans 12 talks about this. Some of you have been given gifts of service, teaching, mercy, exhortation, generosity, leading. All of these need to be used for the glory of God and for the good of the church of Jesus Christ. So it's up to you to discover that gift. Say, okay, God, what is it? And then employ it. Exercise it. Oh, no, it's not going to possibly be a pulpit ministry or, or from a stage or anything like that. But it's for the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. Maybe you have the gift of service. Well, use it. You don't need to be invited to serve others. As needs present themselves, as people share things, as as Tiffany talks about her needs in the kids' ministry, you step up and go, yes, I love to serve. That's my gift. I enjoy serving the people of God. I love preparing here for the the ministry of the word of God and the worship of God when the people of God gather. So yeah, Todd, what do you need? How can I help set up? How can I beautify the space? How can I make this comfortable for the people of God to gather? Or in the host team or anything else that we do or outreach events, we serve. Some of you have administrative gifts. We need those. There's things that need to be systemized and organized. There's those of you who have teaching gifts. There are opportunities to teach in a lot of different ways. It's not always going to be from up here. This is not the only teaching that happens in the church. What has God given you? Use it. Use it or lose it. That's a warning for us as well in that. Then he says here he needs to be an example in diligence. He's got to demonstrate diligence in his life and ministry. Verse 15, he says, practice these things. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Now, practice is is, is the Greek word for cultivate. He's got to cultivate these things, kind of like a farmer works the ground to prepare it, to plant seed, to water it, to cultivate and nourish it, what to produce fruit, right? All of these characteristics need to be put into practice through diligent repetition. Okay, this kind of echoes that earlier exhortation to train for godliness, uh, which was kind of that came from the athletic uh, world, athletic competitions, how athletes train uh, in order to uh, compete. But then he, he adds this second thing. He says, immerse yourself in them. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. That word that we translate immerse is not really found in the original language, uh, but because it's a clunky phrase, 
This is a good, adequate translation for us in English. But literally, the translation is, be in these things. Practice these things. Be in these things. To be in means to be absorbed in them. To, to live and breathe, breathe these things. We use that terminology sometimes, right? Athletes live and breathe, you know, what they're competing for, their sport. We are to live and breathe these things, be absorbed in them, immerse ourselves in them, give all of our life to being an example of godliness, give all of ourselves to being devoted to the word of God, give all of ourselves to the exercise of our gift. Because ministry is hard, you're going to face things, this is going to require diligent sweat, arduous labor, rigorous training. As he says here, though, if people see you practice this and if they see you immerse in these things, they're going to observe your progress. Timothy, they're going to watch you grow in ministry. They're going to see the trajectory of your ministry in an upward, uh, an upward slant here, in an upward track, and they're going to observe that and they're going, we want to follow that example. That's the whole purpose of that. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. They will see your progress. Now, hopefully those that have been with us here for many years who have observed my life in ministry have seen progress. I hope so. That's what I would desire. I hope you've been able to observe a progression in my life of spiritual maturity. And from 10 years ago and 13 years ago, those of you who have known me a long time have seen growth in my life. Growth in godliness, growth in maturity. Hope you've seen a growth in the knowledge of God's word. A growth in my teaching ministry. I don't teach and preach the same way as when I started. Hopefully you think it's better. (laughs) Hopefully it causes you to listen more. (laughs) Right? People should look at our life and our example because we're putting them into practice and we've given ourselves over to them and people see progress. What's progress in the Christian life? We call that sanctification. Right? Growth in godliness, conformity to Christ. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. So how about you? Can those who have known you the longest see a dynamic progression of growth in godliness in your life? Is there observable growth in spiritual maturity? Can a snapshot, if we took a snapshot of your life the last five years, the last ten years... Would that reflect spiritual growth? Think about that. The sad thing is there's a lot of people who are content to stay the way they've been forever. They're not interested in growing. That breaks my heart as a pastor. We should all be striving to grow. We should all be striving to mature in our faith and for people to observe growth in our life. Yet none of us have arrived, have we? None of us have achieved perfection. If you have, please let me know so we can worship you. (laughs) None of us have made it there. Yet that can't stop us from striving for that. And striving for it with the grace that God enables us with. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. I want to read him a familiar passage to us. He writes, not that I've already obtained this, Or I'm already perfect. But I press on to make it my own. 
because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained, to what we have attained. Now, this is Paul, the apostle of the Lord. Paul, who received direct revelation from Jesus Christ. So that's why he's an apostle. He's recognizing he hasn't made it yet. He's recognizing he's not fully perfected yet. He hasn't arrived to the destination. But he says, that's not going to stop me. I press on towards the goal. And what's the goal? He's straining ahead to cross the finish line to obtain the prize. And that prize is Christ Jesus. I'm not perfect. I haven't made it. I haven't arrived. But I'm pressing on because I'm looking at the finish line to get to Christ Jesus. And he says here that, that the mature think this way. I love that phrase. He's like, some of you who are spiritually mature, you get what I'm saying here. You get what I'm writing here. The mature know that they haven't made it yet. The mature don't coast in their spiritual life. The mature don't get to a place of complacency and let their foot off of the gas. They press on in their sanctification. They don't quit the race midstream. They know it's hard. They know it's difficult. And they press on because of what's over the finish line. Christ. They also don't know and they also don't act as if they're perfect. Anyone who acts like they're perfect is not spiritually mature. Anyone who acts hyper-spiritual is not a spiritually mature individual. Okay? The mature don't pretend like they've got it all together. So, Timothy, you've got you've to be an example in perseverance, in diligence, in your sanctification, in your process of maturing in Christ Jesus. That maturity in Christ is what Paul desired and labored for in the church. We've read this passage, but it is so important to uh, these pastoral epistles. But what he writes in Colossians chapter 128 Him we proclaim. Christ is who we proclaim. We herald. We hold up. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's our job. That's our job. This is what we labor for. This is what we sweat for. This is what we give ourselves for to present everyone, present company included, mature in Christ. But in conclusion here, and and what Paul ends this with, is this exhortation to Timothy. A warning that he needs to give equal attention and perseverance to his own life, to himself, and to the doctrine of the church. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. He's to pay attention closely to his character, of which he needs to set an example to others in godly character, and he needs to set an example in his teaching. Now, if he's setting an example in godly character and he's devoting himself to God's word, this will be the outcome. He will be keeping watch on himself, and he will be keeping watch on the teaching of the church. That's important. 
We've said this repeatedly in our series. There's this close connection between our conduct and our doctrine. In what we do and what we believe. Right? That's interconnected. You cannot separate, divorce these things from each other. Right conduct in the church will naturally flow from a right confession of Christ and His truth. What we believe about God is so important because it determines how you and I live for God. You cannot separate that. We need to be consistent in creed and we need to be consistent in deed. Creed and deed, that rhymes, remember it. we got to be saturated with God's word so that we'd be growing in godliness, growing in love and devotion to the Lord. Now listen, here's why Paul's writing this and why he's strongly urging Timothy to watch his life and his doctrine. The same thing he echoes to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Watch how you live before the sheep of God because they're the people of God and they're watching you. And what you do, they're going to do. And watch what you're teaching them. Make sure it's the truth. Make sure it's the gospel that you heard that was first taught to you. Do not deviate from that teaching. It's that critical. It's that important. Why? Because if Timothy perseveres in all of the things that Paul has instructed in men, he will be growing in his own sanctification in all areas, in all things, and he's going to aid in the spiritual formation of those who sit under his teaching. He'll be sanctified. They'll be sanctified. He'll grow in godliness. They will grow in godliness. He will increase in spiritual maturity. They will increase in spiritual maturity. And that's what's meant by this very cryptic phrase here. You will save yourself and your hearers. Now we know none of us save people. Right? You do know that, right? You're not Jesus. Sorry to burst your bubble. You're not the Messiah. We know we, we do not save. Only Christ saves, right? Paul has made that very clear even in this letter. It mentioned several times. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. God is the Savior of all men, right? And here now he says, hey, you do this. Watch your life and doctrine. You're going to save yourself and your hearers. Well, we don't save ourselves, and we certainly don't save one another. So he has to be talking about this aspect of growth and godliness and spiritual maturity, He's not contradicting himself in what he's already taught. But what he's saying here with this phrase is that those who persist in life and doctrine will persevere in salvation. Now, what kind of salvation? Well, we know, and we've we've heard it taught here, salvation is both past, present, and future. We've been justified. We've been saved by Christ Jesus. We're being saved as we're being sanctified and conformed to Christ. And we will be saved when we are glorified with Christ Jesus at his return. But right now in this in-between, our justification and our glorification is this period of life where we're walking these things out in which we need to watch our life and doctrine closely. We need to persist in it, persevere. And the one who perseveres is the one who makes it to the end, right? Yes? You don't persevere, that means you haven't made it to the end. All right, so what's the point here? Okay, those who keep this, who don't quit, they're not going to depart from the faith. They're not going to shipwreck their faith. They're they're not going to stray from the faith. 
All right, they're not going to they're not going to find themselves at the end of their life totally drifting away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're going to run the race and they're going to cross the finish line. Look at this, and we'll explain further. Colossians chapter 1, 21 through 23. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, what Paul's writing there is the before and after of the Christian life. Here's what you were before. Hey, that's those before and after pictures you see, right? The severely obese guy. And then the skinny guy is the after picture, right? That's what you looked like before. This is what you look like now. Here's the before of your Christian life. You were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds. Here's the after picture. Now you've been reconciled by Christ Jesus. And he's going to present you what? Holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now here's the condition he puts in here in verse 23. If... Indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you, what, heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became minister. So that's the before, that's the after, and then he writes here, if you continue in the faith, if you remain steadfast, if you don't shift from the hope of the gospel, if, if, if. It makes it sound like perseverance is the cause of my salvation. That I'm saved only if I persevere. Do you think that's what he's writing here? No. That's not what he means here at all. He's already established quite clearly, this is what you were before, and this is what you are now. It's the reality. You are presently reconciled with Christ Jesus. You will be made holy and blameless. You will be presented righteous before him. Christ has already accomplished that for you. So perseverance is not the cause of our salvation. You're not saved by your perseverance. But our perseverance will be the ultimate evidence of our salvation. He who endures to the end, Jesus said, will be saved. That's the proof. You're saved. You made it to the end. You crossed the finish line. You have obtained the prize. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are. Look, being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Here's the gospel I preached to you. You received it. You believed it. You're standing in it, standing firm in it, right? You're being saved but you're holding fast to the word of truth. Perseverance is going to be proof positive that your salvation was valid. But you weren't saved because you persevered. You're saved by Christ Jesus. You're saved if you hold fast to the truth. That's warning we continually give. Why? So we can watch our life and doctrine closely. So we don't veer off into error. Veering off into error means you've departed from the faith. So the good minister keeps a close watch on himself and his teaching. He's going to persevere himself in the faith, and he's going to encourage others to persevere in the faith. That's how one saves himself and his hearers. Now, I have the distinct privilege as your pastor to participate with God uh, in this ongoing work of salvation, and it indeed is a high calling uh, and honor. Um, So I want to encourage you to pray for me. I want to endeavor to live my life watching my life closely and watching the doctrine 
I'm zealous for God's church. I love the church of Jesus Christ. I love him because of how he has saved me. And I love the honor he's given me to shepherd the flock of God. It means I love you all. And loving you all means also there's going to be times where hard words are going to be said. But it's towards this end that we persevere, that we press on in the faith, that none of us give up in this fight. We will face opposition. We have opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're buffeted every day by those things. But you've got to remain and hold fast to the faith. We're in this thing together. And I need you in my own life to encourage me. We need one another. We have to encourage one another in the faith. We need to stir up one another, as Hebrews says, to love and good deeds. But I have this double responsibility of my life, watching over my life and your life. So I'm striving to make sure my life is worthy of imitation uh, and an example that you can follow. In the 13th chapter of Hebrews, the writer here in verse 7 and 17 writes this instruction to the church. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We have to have a faith worthy of imitation. We have to set that example. Then he goes on in 17, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are what? Keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage uh, to you. I have a responsibility before God to keep watch over your souls, to pray for you diligently, come before God on behalf of the flock of God here, to pray for your needs, to pray for your situations, Uh, and I take that as a serious responsibility, but I need your cooperation in that. Because I want to do it with joy. <laughs> I want to do it with joy. I need your partnership in the gospel. I need your commitment to growth in godliness, to perseverance, growth in your devotion to God's word, and to exercising your spiritual gift for the glory of God and the good of his church. So you also, brothers and sisters, keep a close watch on your own conduct, on your own life. Don't stray from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not stray from the word of truth. Watch what you bring into your life, brothers and sisters. Error out there, the the, the thing with error out there that makes it so easy to receive and believe is just got enough truth mixed into it. It's got a measure, a kernel of truth in it that you go, oh, that sounds like the gospel. Be diligent to know the word of God so you won't be led astray. Don't move away from the hope of the gospel you've heard. The key to godliness is Christ, brothers and sisters. He's the mystery of godliness. He's the goal of godliness. He's our example of godliness. There's no greater example for us. He is the goal. We are all straining forward. That imagery of a runner straining ahead, right? So his head passes the finish line or to cross the tape at the finish line. We all want to make it there. Every one of us. None of us left behind. But I want you to be encouraged, saint of God. His divine power has granted us everything we need. He's granted us all things to sanctify us, everything that pertains to life and godliness. He's granted us His Spirit, brothers and sisters, our helper to come alongside us, to be alongside us, to strengthen us, to empower us, to lead us into all truth. That's what He's given us so that we will not fail 
And our Savior and our Lord has secured our growth in godliness. And He's ensured your success in godliness. You will be conformed to Christ. You will be conformed to Christ even as you persevere in being an example of godliness, an example in devotion to His Word, and in exercising your spiritual gift for the glory of God.